Chapter sixty six of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jack Farrell. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter sixty six. Tis one thing to be tempted, Aeschylus. Another thing to fall. Lydgate certainly had good reason to reflect on the service his practice did him in counteracting his personal cares. He had no longer free energy enough for spontaneous research and speculative thinking. But by the bedside of patience, the direct external calls on his judgment and sympathies brought the added impulse needed to draw him out of himself. It was not simply that beneficent harness of routine which enables silly men to live respectably and unhappy men to live calmly. It was a perpetual claim on the immediate fresh application of thought and on the consideration of another's need and trial. Many of us looking back through life would say that the kindest man we have ever known has been a medical man, or perhaps that surgeon whose fine tact directed by deeply informed perception, has come to us in our need with a more sublime beneficence than that of miracle-workers. Some of that twice-blessed mercy was always with Lydgate in his work at the hospital or in private houses, serving better than any opiate to quiet and sustain him under his anxieties and his sense of mental degeneracy. Mr. Fairbrother's suspicion as to the opiate was true, however. Under the first galling pressure of foreseen difficulties, and the first perception that his marriage, if it were not to be a yoked loneliness, must be a state of effort to go on loving without too much care about being loved, he had once or twice tried a dose of opium. But he had no hereditary constitutional craving after such transient escapes from the hauntings of misery. He was strong, could drink a great deal of wine, but did not care about it, and when the men round him were drinking spirits, he took sugar and water, having a contemptuous pity even for the earliest stages of excitement from drink. It was the same with gambling. He had looked on at a great deal of gambling in Paris, watching it as if it had been a disease. He was no more tempted by such winning than he was by drink. He had said to himself that the only winning he cared for must be attained by a conscious process of high, difficult combination tending towards a beneficent result. The power he longed for could not be represented by agitated fingers clutching a heap of coin, or by the half-barbarous, half-idiotic triumph in the eyes of a man who sweeps within his arms the ventures of twenty chap-fallen companions. But just as he had tried opium, so his thought now began to turn upon gambling, not with appetite for its excitement, but with a sort of wistful inward gaze after that easy way of getting money, which implied no asking and brought no responsibility. If he had been in London or Paris at that time, it is probable that such thoughts, seconded by opportunity, 
would have taken him into a gambling-house, no longer to watch the gamblers, but to watch with them in kindred eagerness. Repugnance would have been surmounted by the immense need to win, if change would be kind enough to let him, an incident which happened not very long after any notion of getting aid from his uncle had been excluded was a strong sign of the effect that might have followed any extant opportunity of gambling. The billiard-room at the Green Dragon was the constant resort of a certain set. Most of them, like our acquaintance Mr. Bainbridge, were regarded as men of pleasure. It was here that poor Fred Vincey had made part of his memorable debt, having lost money in betting and been obliged to borrow of that gay companion. It was generally known in Middlemarch that a good deal of money was lost and won in this way, and the consequent repute of the Green Dragon as a place of dissipation naturally heightened in some quarters the temptation to go there. Probably its regular visitants, like the initiates of Freemasonry, wished that there were something a little more tremendous to keep to themselves concerning it. But they were not a closed community and many decent seniors as well as juniors occasionally turned into the billiard-room to see what was going on. Lydgate, who had the muscular aptitude for billiards and was fond of the game, had once or twice in the early days after his arrival in Middlemarch taken his turn with the cue at the Green Dragon, but afterwards he had no leisure for the game and no inclination for the socialities there. One evening, however, he had occasion to seek Mr. Bainbridge at that resort. The horse-dealer had engaged to get him a customer for his remaining good horse, for which Lydgate had determined to substitute a cheap hack, hoping by this reduction of style to get perhaps twenty pounds, and he cared now for every small sum as a help towards feeding the patience of his tradesmen. To run up to the billiard-room as he was passing would save time. Mr. Bainbridge was not yet come, but would be sure to arrive by and by, said his friend Mr. Horrock, and Lydgate stayed playing a game for the sake of passing the time. That evening he had the peculiar light in the eyes and the unusual vivacity which had been once noticed in him by Mr. Fairbrother. The exceptional fact of his presence was much noticed in the room where there was a good deal of Middlemarch company, and several lookers-on, as well as some of the players, were betting with animation. Lydgate was playing well and felt confident. The bets were dropping round him, and with a swift glancing thought of the probable gain which might double the sum he was saving from his horse, he began to bet on his own play, and won again and again. Mr. Bainbridge had come in, but Lydgate did not notice him. He was not only excited with his play, but visions were gleaming on him of going the next day to Brassing, where there was gambling on a grander scale to be had, and where, by one powerful snatch at the devil's bait, he might carry it off without the hook, and buy his rescue from its daily solicitings. He was still winning when two new visitors entered. One of them was a young Hawley, just come from his law studies in town, and the other was Fred Vincey, who had spent several evenings of late 
at this old haunt of his. Young Hawley, an accomplished billiard-player, brought a cool, fresh hand to the cue. But Fred Vincy, startled at seeing Lydgate, and astonished to hear him betting with an excited air, stood aside, and kept out of the circle round the table. Fred had been rewarding resolution by a little laxity of late. He had been working heartily for six months at all outdoor occupations under Mr. Garth, and by dint of severe practice had nearly mastered the defects of his handwriting, this practice being, perhaps, a little the less severe that it was often carried on in the evening at Mr. Garth's under the eyes of Mary. But the last fortnight Mary had been staying at Lowick Parsonage with the ladies there, during Mr. Fairbrother's residence in Middlemarch, where he was carrying out some parochial plans, and Fred, not seeing anything more agreeable to do, had turned into the Green Dragon, partly to play at billiards, partly to taste the old flavor of discourse about horses, sport, and things in general, considered from a point of view which was not strenuously correct. He had not been out hunting once this season, had had no horse of his own to ride, and had gone from place to place chiefly with Mr. Garth in his gig, or on the sober cob which Mr. Garth could lend him. It was a little too bad, Fred began to think, that he should be kept in the traces with more severity than if he had been a clergyman. I will tell you what, Mistress Mary, it will be rather harder work to learn surveying and drawing plans than it would have been to write sermons, he had said wishing her to appreciate what he went through for her sake. And as to Hercules and Theseus, they were nothing to me. They had sport, and never learned to write a bookkeeping hand. And now, Mary being out of the way for a little while, Fred, like any other strong dog who cannot slip his collar, had pulled up the staple of his chain, and made a small escape, not of course meaning to go fast or far. There could be no reason why he should not play at billiards, but he was determined not to bet. As to money just now, Fred had in his mind the heroic project of saving almost all of the eighty pounds that Mr. Garth offered him, and returning it, which he could easily do by giving up all futile money-spending, since he had a superfluous stock of clothes and no expenses in his board. In that way he could, in one year, go a good way towards repaying the ninety pounds of which he had deprived Mrs. Garth, unhappily at a time when she needed that sum more than she did now. Nevertheless it must be acknowledged that on this evening, which was the fifth of his recent visits to the billiard-room, Fred had, not in his pocket but in his mind, the ten pounds which he meant to reserve for himself from his half-year salary having before him the pleasure of carrying thirty to Mrs. Garth when Mary was likely to become home again. He had those ten pounds in his mind as a fund from which he might risk something if there were a chance of a good bet. Why? Well, when sovereigns were flying about, why shouldn't he catch a few? He would never go far along that road again, but a man likes to assure himself and men of pleasure generally, what he could do in the way of mischief if he chose, and that if he abstains from making himself ill, or beggaring himself, 
or talking with the utmost looseness which the narrow limits of human capacity will allow, it is not because he is a spoony. Fred did not enter into formal reasons, which are a very artificial, inexact way of representing the tingling returns of old habit and the caprices of young blood. But there was lurking in him a prophetic sense that evening, that when he began to play he should also begin to bet, that he should enjoy some punch-drinking, and in general prepare himself for feeling rather seedy in the morning. It is in such indefinable movements that action often begins. But the last thing likely to have entered Fred's expectation was that he should see his brother-in-law Lydgate, of whom he had never quite dropped the old opinion that he was a prig and tremendously conscious of his superiority, looked excited and betting, just as he himself might have done. Fred felt a shock greater than he could quite account for by the vague knowledge that Lydgate was in debt, and that his father had refused to help him, and his own inclination to enter into the play was suddenly checked. It was a strange reversal of attitudes. Fred's blond face and blue eyes, usually bright and careless, ready to give attention to anything that held out a promise of amusement, looking involuntarily grave and almost embarrassed, as if by the sight of something unfitting, while Lydgate, who had habitually an air of self-possessed strength and a certain meditativeness that seemed to lie behind his most observant attention, was acting, watching, speaking, with that excited narrow consciousness which reminds one of an animal with fierce eyes and retractile claws. Lydgate, by betting on his own strokes, had won sixteen pounds but young Hawley's arrival had changed the poise of things. He made first-rate strokes himself and began to bet against Lydgate strokes, the strain of whose nerves was thus changed from simple confidence in his own movements to defying another person's doubt in them. The defiance was more exciting than the confidence, but it was less sure. He continued to bet on his own play, but began often to fail. Still he went on, for his mind was as utterly narrowed into that precipitous crevice of play as if he had been the most ignorant lounger there. Fred observed that Lydgate was losing fast, and found himself in a new situation of puzzling his brains to think of some device by which, without being offensive, he could withdraw Lydgate's attention, and perhaps suggest to him a reason for quitting the room. He saw that others were observing Lydgate's strange unlikeness to himself, and it occurred to him that merely to touch his elbow and call him aside for a moment might rouse him from his absorption. He could think of nothing cleverer than the daring improbability of saying that he wanted to see Rosie, and wished to know if she were at home this evening, and he was going desperately to carry out this weak device, when a waiter came up to him with a message, saying that Mr. Fairbrother was below, and begged to speak with him. Fred was surprised not quite comfortably, but sending word that he would be down immediately, he went with a new impulse up to Lydgate, said, "'Can I speak to you a moment?' and drew him aside. "'Fairbrother has just sent up a message to say that he wants to speak to me. He is below. I thought you might like to know he was there, if you had anything to say to him.' Fred had simply snatched up this pretext for speaking, because he could not say, you are losing confoundedly, and are making everybody stare at you. You had better come away. 
but inspiration could hardly have served him better. Lydgate had not before seen that Fred was present, and his sudden appearance, with an announcement of Mr. Fairbrother, had the effect of a sharp concussion. "'No, no,' said Lydgate. "'I have nothing particular to say to him. But the game is up. I must be going. I came in just to see Bainbridge.' "'Bainbridge is over there, but he is making a row. I don't think he's ready for business. Come down with me to Fairbrother.' "'I expect he is going to blow me up, and you will shield me,' said Fred, with some adroitness. Lydgate felt shame, but could not bear to act as if he felt it, by refusing to see Mr. Fairbrother, and he went down. They merely shook hands, however, and spoke of the frost, and when all three had turned into the street, the vicar seemed quite willing to say good-bye to Lydgate. His present purpose was clearly to talk with Fred alone, and he said, kindly, I disturbed you, young gentleman, because I have some pressing business with you. Walk with me to St. Bartholomew's, will you? It was a fine night, the sky thick with stars, and Mr. Fairbrother proposed that they should make a circuit to the old church by the London road. The next thing he said was, I thought Lydgate never went to the Green Dragon. So did I, said Fred. But he said that he went to see Bainbridge. He was not playing then. Fred had not meant to tell this, but he was obliged now to say, Yes, yes, he was, but I suppose it was an accidental thing. I have never seen him there before. You have been going often yourself, then, lately? Oh, about five or six times. I think you had some good reason for giving up the habit of going there. Yes, you know all about it said Fred, not liking to be catechized in this way. I made a clean breast to you. I suppose that gives me a warrant to speak about the matter now. It is understood between us, is it not, that we are on a footing of open friendship. I have listened to you, and you will be willing to listen to me. I may take my turn in talking a little about myself. I am under the deepest obligations to you, Mr. Fairbrother, said Fred in a state of uncomfortable surmise. I will not affect to deny that you are under some obligation to me, but I am going to confess to you, Fred, that I have been tempted to reverse all that by keeping silence with you just now. When somebody said to me, Young Vincy has taken to being at the billiard-table every night again, he won't bear the curb long, I was tempted to do the opposite of what I am doing, to hold my tongue and wait while you went down the ladder again, betting first, and then—'I have not made any bets,' said Fred hastily. "'Glad to hear it. But I say, my prompting was to look on and see you take the wrong turning. Wear out Garth's patience, and lose the best opportunity of your life—the opportunity which you made some rather difficult effort to secure. You can guess the feeling which raised that temptation in me. I am sure you know it. I am sure you know that the satisfaction of your affections stands in the way of mine." There was a pause. Mr. Fairbrother seemed to wait for a recognition of the fact, and the emotion perceptible in the tones of his fine voice gave solemnity to his words. But no feeling could quell Fred's alarm. "'I could not be expected to give her up,' he said, after a moment's hesitation. It was not a case for any pretense of generosity. 
Clearly not, when her affection met yours. But relations of this sort, even when they are of long standing, are always liable to change. I can easily conceive that you might act in a way to loosen the tie she feels towards you. It must be remembered that she is only conditionally bound to you, and that in that case another man, who may flatter himself that he has a hold on her regard, might succeed in winning that firm place in her love, as well as respect, which you had let slip. I can easily conceive such a result," repeated Mr. Fairbrother emphatically. There is a companionship of ready sympathy, which might get the advantage even over the longest associations. It seemed to Fred that if Mr. Fairbrother had had a beak and talons, instead of his very capable tongue, his mode of attack could hardly be more cruel. He had a horrible conviction that behind all this hypothetic statement there was a knowledge of some actual change in Mary's feelings. "'Of course I know it might easily be all up with me,' he said, in a troubled voice. "'If she is beginning to compare—' He broke off, not likely to betray all he felt, and then said, by the help of a little bitterness, but I thought you were friendly to me. So I am. That is why we are here. But I have had a strong disposition to be otherwise. I have said to myself, if there is a likelihood of that youngster doing himself harm, why should you interfere? Aren't you worth as much as he is? And don't your sixteen years over and above his, in which you have gone rather hungry, give you more right to satisfaction than he has? If there's a chance of his going to the dogs, let him. Perhaps you could know how hinder it, and do you take the benefit?" There was a pause, in which Fred was seized by a most uncomfortable chill. What was coming next? He dreaded to hear that something had been said to Mary. He felt as if he were listening to a threat rather than a warning. When the vicar began again, there was a change in his tone, like the encouraging transition to a major key. But I had once meant better than that, and I am come back to my old intention. I thought that I could hardly secure myself in it better, Fred, than by telling you just what had gone on in me. And now do you understand me? I want you to make the happiness of her life and your own, and if there is any chance that a word of warning from me may turn aside any risk to the contrary. Well, I have uttered it. There was a drop in the vicar's voice when he spoke the last words. He paused. They were standing on a patch of green where the road diverged towards St. Bartholf's, and he put out his hand, as if to imply that the conversation were closed. Fred was moved quite newly. Someone highly susceptible to the contemplation of a fine act has said, that it produces a sort of regenerating shudder through the frame, and makes one feel ready to begin a new life. A good degree of that effect was just then present in Fred Vincy. "'I will try to be worthy,' he said, breaking off before he could say, "'of you as well as of her.' And meanwhile Mr. Fairbrother had gathered the impulse to say something more. You must not imagine that I believe there is at present any decline in her preference of you, Fred. Set your heart at rest, that if you keep right, 
other things will keep right. I shall never forget what you have done, Fred answered. I can't say anything that seems worth saying. Only I will try that your goodness shall not be thrown away. That's enough. Good-bye, and God bless you. In that way they parted. But both of them walked about a long while before they went out of the starlight. Much of Fred's rumination might be summed up in the words, It certainly would have been a fine thing for her to marry, fair brother. But if she loves me best, and I am a good husband, perhaps Mr. Fairbrothers might be concentrated into a single shrug and one little speech. To think of the part one little woman can play in the life of a man, so that to renounce her may be a very good imitation of heroism, and to win her may be a discipline. End of chapter 66